All right, well, I'm excited uh, to be able to study God's Word with you, so if you'll uh, take your Bible and open with me to uh, Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. We've been in the Gospel of Luke for a number of weeks now, and actually in Luke chapter 3 for a little while now. And uh, this time, uh, today, we're going to be looking at verses 21 and and 22, uh, the baptism of Jesus. And uh, one of the things I hope you've been feeling, sensing, remembering, as uh, we have started working our way through the Gospel of Luke, is that Luke is not really a a book you can read on its own, because it is uh, connected to a story that goes before it. And so there is this story that you need to know and understand if you're going to understand the story you find in Luke. And that story is told in the Old Testament. The Bible is divided into two parts, the old and the new. And yet those two sections tell one story about the way in which God is going to solve the problems of the universe. Beginning, uh, obviously, with the Old Testament, which lays out God's plan. It is like this is God's plan for fixing everything that is wrong in the world, in environment, in the environment, in society, in our relationships with one another, and in our relationship with him. And Luke is writing to say that what happened with Jesus is the way that God is fulfilling those promises. So the Old Testament promises God is sending a hero. And Luke says, Jesus is that hero. And he wants to prove it to you, Luke. That's the thing. He wants you to be absolutely certain about that. And so far in chapters 1 and 2, and even the beginning of chapter 3, as he tells the story of Jesus, it's, it's looking pretty good, actually, in terms of how it's working out, because the gospel begins, and it goes the way that we would expect it to go. There's all these obvious, supernatural things going on, like an angel showing up to announce Jesus' birth, and a virgin conceiving and having a child, and prophets who are prophesying that Jesus is the one who is going to fulfill the Old Testament. And not only that, you remember that uh, there's a forerunner as well. Jesus has a forerunner, someone who goes before him. And what's amazing about the one who goes before Jesus is that even he has prophecies made about him, and this supernatural beginning as well. And when Luke starts describing his ministry, At first, John's the the forerunner in chapter 3. You look at John, and what happens is just point for point the way you would expect, knowing what you know about the Old Testament. I mean, his ministry is huge. But then, all of a sudden, we get to chapter 3, verses 18 through 20, and it's like, bang, there is a problem. We're confronted with this problem, and this is going to be the problem throughout the Gospel of Luke. I mean, it's not going to get smaller. It's only going to get bigger and bigger throughout this Gospel. In a way, reading the Gospel of Luke is like listening to a a symphony. And at the beginning, it's just beautiful, and every note is in its place, until suddenly, it's like screech! There is this really strange sound that is so jarring, and then it goes away for a while, you don't hear it, and then later on, that note that just sounds so wrong gets louder and louder and louder, and you're like, what's going on? 
In a way, that's what's happening here in Luke because, you know, we're just getting things started and we're looking at John and, and John the Baptist is not Jesus. He's not the hero Jesus is. He, he's just a forerunner to Jesus. And yet you look at John and what you're seeing is a preview of what's going to happen when you look at Jesus and what happens to John. He, he does his job. He fulfills the Old Testament. The crowds get excited. He preaches the gospel. People ask if he's the Messiah. It's all so beautiful, right? And then screech, he's thrown into prison. That's a problem. And again, it's a problem because of what we're claiming about what John is doing. And especially, of course, about because of what we're claiming about what Jesus is doing. I mean, this is not... And this is so important to understand. This is not just a philosophy that we're talking about as Christians. You can go a lot of places and get a lot of philosophy. But this is not just a philosophy that we're talking about as Christians. We are saying that God did something. And Luke is clear about what God is doing in John's ministry. He says, Luke chapter 3, verse 4, As it is written in the book of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. In other words, John's ministry is a fulfillment of the Old Testament first. It's a world-changing ministry, second, and it's what comes before the whole world sees the salvation of God. And that's the key word, salvation. And it's not just any salvation either that he's talking about. It is a, a specific salvation. It is the salvation that was promised in the Old Testament. And the thing is, we know how people thought about that salvation because Luke has told us what they were expecting to happen back in chapters one and two. You remember how he talked about the promises God made to Israel in the Old Testament, and then about promises about what God was going to do through Israel. And we saw those promises were actually much more than just kind of you and me having a personal relationship with God, though there's that involved. But the promises that Luke is describing are actually even bigger than that. They're they're promises about fundamental changes in politics and fundamental changes in the social order and fundamental changes in economics. Read Mary's song and read what Zachariah says. And so if God is really fulfilling the Old Testament promises through Jesus, And if that's what Luke is writing to prove, we've got to ask, as we look at John's ministry, if he's the forerunner, how does what happened do that if he's thrown into prison? And then even more importantly, if Jesus is the Messiah, how does what happened do that if he's crucified? In other words, how can we know these men are who you say they are and are able to do what you say they can do when this is what happened to them? That is the question you have to have in your mind as you read through Luke. 
especially obviously about Jesus. It's almost like a, a problem that we're trying to solve. Because, and you can just imagine, it's, it's a little like me and my friend coming and saying that we are going to go out and defeat the dragon or something. And then we go and you watch and the dragon eats us. It's like, uh, what happened? How are we supposed to believe that we actually accomplished what we said we were going to accomplish when we get eaten by the dragon? How are we supposed to believe that Jesus is accomplishing what Luke 1 and 2 say he's accomplishing when he is crucified? And again, I know I keep saying it, but we have to be patient because we're not going to get the whole solution here in Luke chapter 3 because the whole gospel is written to answer that question. And I think even Acts as well. So this is going to take us a while. But we do get some help in the next several stories. Luke gives us a, a category, a framework for understanding the rest of the gospel that is vital in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 4, verse 13. And we're only looking at the introduction, verses 21 and 22 today. But this is one section, really. And so while there are three separate stories, if you look down at them, chapter 3, 21 and 22, and chapter 3, 23 through verse 38, and and chapter 4, verse 1 through 13, those three stories are connected to show us something and to help us understand something about Jesus that is going to be key for understanding how we know Jesus is accomplishing what the Old Testament promised. And it has to do with who Jesus is. So you want to understand how we, as Christians, can say that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament promises. You have to look at who Jesus is. And you know, you can see that Luke is even trying to get our attention on Jesus in the way he tells this first story in verse 21 about his baptism, because he tells it a little differently than the other gospel writers do. You see, Luke writes, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, and you notice, as you look at that verse, who's missing, right? Who is, who's missing there? You notice that Luke doesn't say who baptized Jesus. We sort of read that into it. We read John the Baptist into it because we know the story. But Luke technically only says when Jesus also was baptized. And actually, it's a little more than that because before he even talks about Jesus' baptism, he's already wrapped up his discussion of John the Baptist by telling us that he was placed in prison, which is unusual, that he ends John's ministry before Jesus' baptism. And it's not because he doesn't know that John the Baptist baptized Jesus, but instead it's because when he talks about the baptism, he wants us to focus our attention on Jesus. This is Luke's way of putting the spotlight on him. This is about Jesus, and it's about who Jesus is. And there is one clue here, specifically in this story and in the following stories, it's even there in the genealogy, about who Jesus is that Luke is pointing out is absolutely essential. And fortunately, it's not really difficult to see, though it's a little more difficult to understand, but it's not really difficult to see because while each of these stories is different, very different, you have a, a baptism and you have this long list of names 
which is not even really a story. It's, it's a genealogy. And then you have this temptation in the wilderness. But even though each of these stories is very different, they have one big thing in common. So if you look at the end of verse 22, Luke says, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. And then if you look at the end of verse 38, the genealogy ends, the son of Adam, the son of God. And then if you look at verse three of chapter four, Satan says, if you are the son of God, and we'll see that is really since, since you are the son of God. And then in verse nine, the same statement, if you are the son of God, since you are the son of God. And so you see the common thread, right? Son of God. Jesus is the son of God. And that is going to be key. Before Luke looks at Jesus's life and what he does and why it goes the way it goes, he introduces you to this key truth about who Jesus is, which gives you a framework for understanding what you're going to read and why it happens the way it happens. First, in the baptism, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God is proclaimed. And then second, in the genealogy, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God is explained. And then finally, in the temptation in the wilderness, it's tested. And it's interesting, actually, because if you look back to Luke chapter 2, Luke's already got us thinking in this direction. Because there, you remember, he tells a story about how Mary and Joseph were confused about what Jesus was doing. And then he shows the way that Jesus identifies the problem in verse 49 when he says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And so Jesus at 12 is pinpointing the issue already and I think the solution. The reason Mary and Joseph didn't understand why Jesus was acting the way he was acting was because they didn't appreciate what the scripture taught about who Jesus was and specifically about what it meant for him to be the son of God. And in these three stories at the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four, Luke is saying that this is gonna be a clue or it's gonna be a category that's gonna help you understand what's going on in Jesus's life and help you understand how he's accomplishing the salvation the Old Testament promised, even when maybe at, at first it looks like he's losing. So it's important, Jesus as son of God. And yet it's also a little difficult for us to wrap our minds around. How do we know that Jesus is the son of God? What does it mean? And what does it have to do with the kind of life that Jesus lived and the kind of death he died? Those are the kinds of questions that Luke is answering if we look carefully. And so we're going to look carefully at these three stories. And we're going to try to let these stories tell us what Luke wants us to know about Jesus as the son of God. So Jesus as the son of God is actually a super big category. What Luke's going to do in these three stories is focus your attention on what he wants you to know about Jesus as the Son of God so you can understand the rest of his gospel. And we're going to look carefully at these stories starting today at Jesus' baptism because, like I said, this is the introduction where God is proclaiming to the world that Jesus is his Son. In other words, we've heard a lot of perspectives on Jesus so far as we've read through Luke 1 and 2 and 3, But here, God is giving us his perspective on Jesus. And to appreciate that perspective, first we have to look at the setting or the the scene, because I think it's easy to miss the impact of what happens here. Because as we look at Jesus standing there on the banks of the Jordan River, we're tempted to already have these kind of extraordinary things that he went on to do 
in our minds. But the reality is that, that as we look at Jesus here, he doesn't look that extraordinary. Instead, he looks fairly ordinary, like just another Jewish carpenter from Nazareth coming out to listen to John, actually. I mean, he's probably only 30 years old or so, give or take a year or two. And if you look at Jesus's life so far, to be honest, not much has happened from a human perspective after those first couple of years, except for Jesus living out his life pretty much like everyone else was. In fact, I think probably the thing that stands out the most about Jesus at this moment is the fact that he didn't really stand out that much from everyone else. Luke writes, look at how he puts it. Now, when all the people were baptized and Jesus also had been baptized, which sounds sort of matter of fact, I know. And Luke's intentionally putting it like that. But the reality is, it's kind of shocking. And to get the shock, picture John as he's standing out there somewhere in the wilderness, and maybe at this moment actually in the Jordan River, with this huge crowd that is flooding out to hear him from all over. And they're excited because they're they're coming out into the wilderness with these giant expectations. And hearing John preach is somehow only increasing them as he's telling them to get ready for the salvation of God and to prove that they're ready by getting baptized. And they're listening, and they're getting baptized. And so you can imagine here this long line of people who are standing at the edge of the Jordan River, and they're getting in one by one, and in goes one, and down, and John baptizes them, and and then up, and he's gasping for air maybe, and, and then here comes another, and down he goes, and then up, and in goes another, and down and up, and somewhere in the middle of all this, there's Jesus, who, who's standing there with everyone else, waiting to be baptized. Which seems strange at first, right? I mean, that's surprising, seeing Jesus in this long line to be baptized. Because why does Jesus even have to be baptized? That's the question that's easy for us to be tripped up on, especially because Luke has told us that John's baptism was a baptism of what? Repentance. In other words, this was a humbling baptism, not just for individuals, actually, but for the nation. And that's important to understand, because why are they getting baptized, Israel, at this moment in time? It's not because they had done everything right that they were getting baptized. It's because they had done almost everything wrong and failed in their mission as a nation. So again, you have to understand, this baptism is part of a bigger story of what God's doing in the world. And to understand what God is doing in the world, you kind of have to go back to the beginning, the very beginning. When God put Adam in the world, he gave Adam something he was supposed to do. And Adam didn't do it, and so he was kicked out. And from Adam, we're kind of wondering, how do we get back in to the garden? And so God chooses this nation, Israel, and he gives them things to do, and he makes them promises. If they do them, he's going to bless them. And one of the results of that blessing is they're going to become a light to the world. But they didn't do them. And that's why they were having the problems they were having. It was like they were kicked out of the garden as well. And so God sends John to say that he hasn't given up on them. He's going to bring salvation and he's going to keep his promises and make a way for them to enter back into the promised land. That's why they're actually at the Jordan River and and fulfill his plan 
for rescuing the universe. But to enjoy that salvation and to participate in that plan, they're going to need to humble themselves. In fact, you know, it's going to have to be like they go all the way back to the beginning before they even entered the promised land the first time and start all over again, acknowledging their deep need for God's forgiveness and cleansing as they do, which is why they're getting in the water. And why it's a little confusing at first to see Jesus getting baptized as well, because we know he's an individual who never failed. And yet I don't think it's as confusing as we sometimes make it, because we know it was obviously not happening because Jesus had anything to repent of personally. He was perfect. And it wasn't because he was born again and he wanted to testify to that or something. This is not Christian baptism we're talking about. John's baptism was something different. It was before the cross when godly Jews were hoping that God would send the Messiah. And the reason John was baptized was to, the reason he baptized was to identify the people who were ready for that deliverance. That's what's going on. Because there's this whole nation, Israel, and yet you remember how John said that not everyone who's a Jew is really ready for God's promised salvation. There were a lot of Jews who were like, I'm fine as long as I'm a Jew. And God sent John to make clear that wasn't true. They weren't fine. They needed to prepare themselves for the salvation that God was going to provide through the Messiah by repenting and getting baptized. And you know, not every Jew in Israel did get baptized. There were many, for sure, who didn't get baptized by John. But the people who did get baptized they were saying, we agree with you, John. And we want to submit to God's will and put our hopes in the salvation that God has promised. And so we're going to depend completely on him and turn from everything that's against God. And we're going to demonstrate that by humbling ourselves and getting baptized just the way the Gentiles would have had to if they were going to become Jews. And Luke shows us Jesus getting baptized the way he does, right along with everybody else, in this very matter-of-fact way. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized, because before he goes any further to explain what Jesus does, he wants us to see Jesus identifying with the people of God. Jesus doing what God commanded Israel to do, and Jesus longing for what godly Jews were longing for. In a sense, this is like Jesus' stamp of approval on Luke 1 to 3 and all those expectations those godly Israelites were having. And I think we see that in the one detail that Luke adds that the other gospel writers don't. Whenever you read a gospel, you want to ask, why does he tell the story the way he does? Luke is not answering Matthew's questions. Matthew, he adds details to the baptism that are different because he's making a different a little bit of a different argument. Luke tells this story the way he does for a reason. And one of the things that Luke adds, the one detail that he adds actually that the others don't, is at the end of verse 21 where he tells us, and when Jesus was praying, the heavens were open. And obviously Luke doesn't tell us what Jesus was praying about there. But given the fact that John is proclaiming the kingdom of God, and that people are getting baptized as a way of saying they're ready for God to fulfill the promises he made in the Old Testament, it makes sense that Luke showing us Jesus praying as he's getting baptized is a way of showing us Jesus identifying with the people of God who are longing that God would glorify himself by keeping the promises he made in the Old Testament. 
And so if you think about the questions we're asking after seeing John locked up in prison the way he was, but how we can know whether God's really doing what people were hoping he would do through Jesus, Luke's answer begins here at Jesus's baptism as Jesus is doing what those who were longing for God to save Israel were doing when suddenly the heavens were open. That's how Luke puts it at the end of verse 21, which must have been absolutely awesome because it happened. And I'm not sure what it would have looked like, the heavens being open like that. And you know, Mark describes it with an even stronger term. He says the heavens were ripped apart. And that's probably an allusion back to Isaiah 64, where Isaiah prays that God would rip open the heavens and come down. And so the gospel writers are saying Isaiah's prayer is being answered. And while it's hard for us to imagine what the heavens being opened must have looked like, it's not hard for us to understand what it means. And that is that here at Jesus' baptism, it's like heaven can't keep silent anymore. And there's a kind of revelatory explosion as God pulls back the curtain on what's happening in his throne room so we can peer into heaven and get a glimpse of his perspective on Jesus. After describing the setting in verse 21 and getting us ready, Luke goes on and gives us God's testimony about Jesus in verse 22, and he does so in two ways. First, Luke writes, the spirit descends. The heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. And this is important just theologically, actually. So you want to remember this when you're talking about the nature of God, because there's a heresy that's called modalism. And the idea is that there's one God who sometimes shows up as the Father, and sometimes as the Son, and sometimes as the Spirit. In other words, he's not eternally three persons. He's only one person who plays three different roles. And you know, this idea is still around. There's a very famous preacher who's a a modalist. And it's a, a serious heresy because it worships a different God than the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible eternally exists in three persons. And you worship him because he does. He is one God in three persons. God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Spirit is God, and they are one God. But God the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, which of course is hard to understand, but it's true. That's the way it is. And it's pictured for us here at Jesus' baptism because the Spirit descends on the Son, and the Father speaks from heaven. And so you have all three members of the Trinity showing up. And as we look specifically first at the Spirit descending on the Son, this is one of those times, I think, when you're reading the Scriptures and you know you're seeing something that is really significant, but is also a little hard to grasp. Because while the Spirit descends on Jesus here at this moment, at this point in time, obviously Jesus must have had the Spirit before he was baptized. I mean, if John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, it's hard to imagine that Jesus wasn't as well. And I shouldn't really even say it like that because there isn't any doubt. Jesus has always been in perfect communion with the Spirit. So I don't think Luke is telling us that Jesus lived his life apart from the Spirit before the baptism, and now suddenly this is the moment he received the Spirit. But instead, this is more like a coronation ceremony. You know how they do that for kings. 
In fact, John himself set this, sets this up. You remember maybe a couple verses before where the people asked John if he's the Messiah, and he says, I baptize you with water, but the Messiah will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so the Messiah obviously has a special relationship with the Spirit. And this is like a God-designed signal that Jesus was the one John had been prophesying about. And we know that because John actually tells us that. In John 1.32, he says, John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Spirit. And why is it important to know who baptizes with the Spirit? Because that's the one who's the Messiah. That's what John told us. So the Spirit descending on Jesus here in bodily form is a a signal to, to the world that he is the Messiah that John prophesied about. And that's actually probably why he descended in bodily form because the spirit doesn't need a body. I mean, that's why you have the name, the the spirit. But he is descending bodily, physically here, because God is giving the world a sign that Jesus was uniquely set apart and empowered for his role as the Messiah by the Holy Spirit. And as Luke writes this story about Jesus's work as Messiah, he's gonna come back to the spirit's role in Jesus's life over and over again. In fact, the the next time we see Jesus in Luke, Luke 4.1, he tells us that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and he returned from Jordan where he was baptized and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And I can't wait till we get to to that part. (laughs) But there's a connection. Jesus identifies with Israel. Jesus is Israel's Messiah and he's empowered by the Spirit to do something to go into the wilderness. Why the wilderness? We'll get to it in January. Why the wilderness? But he's empowered by the Spirit to go into the wilderness and to battle Satan. And then after he comes out of the wilderness successful, Luke tells us in chapter 4, verse 14, that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Specifically, he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. He goes into a synagogue. They ask him to read the Bible. And you know what he does? He reads from... Isaiah. And you know what passage Jesus chooses to preach his first sermon on? What it's about? It's about the Spirit's relationship to the Messiah. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then after that, it's like mic drop. Jesus just rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant and he sits down. Some of you probably wish our sermons were that short. And everyone there is just looking at him, wondering what's going to happen next. And you know what he said? He said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Which means that Jesus is explaining the meaning of the Spirit descending at his baptism, really, as a sign that Jesus wasn't just some Jewish carpenter who decided to go around doing public ministry. No, he was led by the Spirit, and he was empowered by the Spirit, which was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah's relationship with the Spirit, specifically 
this passage in Isaiah that said the Messiah would be anointed by the Spirit. And that word anointed is really the key because anointing was a way of God setting apart people for special tasks. Kings were anointed, priests were anointed, prophets were anointed. Think of how David was anointed king way back in 1 Samuel 16 where Samuel takes this horn that's filled with oil and anoints David in the middle of his brothers. And the Bible says the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And that's a picture of what's happening here at the baptism of Jesus. Because what happens at the baptism of Jesus is Jesus' anointing in the middle of his brothers as the promised king. Only he wasn't anointed with oil. He was anointed directly with the Spirit. Which is probably the easier part to understand, believe it or not. Because there are parts to what happened here that I'm not sure I can explain. Like, for example, the fact that Luke and every other gospel writer says that the Spirit descended like a dove. It seems important that every gospel writer mentions that, but it's hard to know why it was like a dove. And underline like a dove, because it doesn't actually say he was a dove. It says like a dove. And the word like is describing the the manner in which the Spirit descended. Most likely, the, the manner or the way in which the Spirit came down from heaven was like that of a dove. So really, this may not even refer to how the Spirit looked. It probably doesn't. But instead, to the way he descended. And yet still, every gospel writer does think of a dove to describe this. And it makes you wonder, why a dove? Because a dove doesn't have a lot of significance as we read the Old Testament. It's not like we can point to something and say, oh, wow, that explains it. Maybe it's connected back to the fact that at the creation of the world, the Spirit of God's described as hovering over the face of the waters. And the Hebrew word for hovering gives us the image of the Spirit hovering like a bird. And then next you have Genesis 8, 11, where Noah sends out a dove, which comes back as a sign that God's judgment was over. But it's hard to get really much from that. When, when Luke speaks of doves, the first time it was back in Luke chapter 2, and they were the sacrifice that Mary and Joseph made as part of their obedience to God's law at the time of Jesus' birth. And then later, Jesus is going to speak of doves and describe them as being a picture of innocence. And so with all that, the best I can come up with is that maybe the Spirit descended like a dove because while John and everyone else was expecting the Messiah to come as this great warrior and judge at first, Maybe the Spirit comes like a dove as a reminder that what the Spirit was leading Jesus to do in his first coming here that we're reading about in the Gospels would be a little different than people were at first expecting. He'll be an innocent sacrifice, maybe, but, but really maybe not, even probably not. I'm not sure, besides helping us get a sense of the realness of the Spirit's descent, what the significance of the dove is. And I think it would probably be foolish to get too lost in the picture we're given and to miss the main point which is that one way we know this man, Jesus, who was getting baptized with everyone else, was in fact the Messiah God promised through the Old Testament, is the fact that he was anointed in an unmistakable and memorable way by a physical descent of the Holy Spirit upon him. It is like God testifying, this is your Messiah, Israel. As first the Spirit descends, and then second, God the Father speaks. The end of verse 22. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. I wish I had a James Earl Jones voice at at that moment because we get so used to things and 
and we aren't surprised by this voice that comes out of heaven. But imagine being there that day, because this actually happened. God audibly spoke, and we don't know exactly what it sounded like. In another passage, those hearing God's voice thought it sounded something like thunder, but not thunder either. Some thought it was the voice of angels. Well, whatever it sounded like, really, I'm sure it must have been awesome. But even more significant than what the voice sounded like is what the voice actually said. And we ought to pay very close attention to what God says because God the Father speaking like this out loud from heaven is so that everyone can hear is pretty rare in the scriptures. I mean, as far as we know, it only happened three times in the life of Jesus. And two of the times, actually, God pretty much says the same thing. What he says here, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And the really funny thing is that you might have thought, with God only speaking from heaven a couple of times, that he would have come up with a totally new thing to say. Something he never said anywhere before. But the reality is, when you look at what God the Father says to Jesus here more closely, you realize that he was quoting the Old Testament. This is God quoting himself. In other words, these words, these phrases that he says to Jesus are not new. And of course, being saturated in scripture the way he was, Jesus would have known exactly where they came from. And when you look at where they came from, they provide a clue as to how Jesus was going to fulfill the mission God gave him. And I'll highlight a couple of those clues here, but I don't fortunately have to go too deep because in the next two stories, the genealogy, and the temptation, Luke's going to help us know what we're supposed to focus on. But to get you ready, first of all, Exodus. In the Old Testament, Israel was God's son. So in Exodus chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, God tells Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And then, of course, because Israel is God's son, In Deuteronomy, God's going to say, you have to be obedient to me as your father, which of course was the problem. Israel wasn't obedient to God as their father, which is why God has to take them all the way back to the beginning here in Luke. And as Jesus is baptized, he's identifying with Israel. And it's like God is saying, okay, let's start overall. Let's start all over again. You, Jesus, are going to represent Israel. Second, though, the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 2, Israel was God's son. Psalm chapter 2, the king of Israel was God's son. So Psalm 2 was originally about David and then these kings that descended from David, and it was an encouragement to David that he didn't need to fear his enemies because God had anointed him as king. And you might listen to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, the psalmist asked. The kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us he who sits in the heavens laughs the Lord holds them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying as for me I've set my king on Zion my holy hill I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me you are my son today I have begotten you And while that applied to David, to a certain extent, really David was a shadow, you might say, 
and Jesus was the substance. And so this psalm ultimately looks forward to Jesus and to the work he would do. And God, at Jesus' baptism, quoting this psalm the way he does, is pointing us to the fact that Jesus really is this great messianic king. Which is why when we read the rest of the psalm, which says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We're really reading statements that are being made of Jesus. And assure us, once again, that God the Father's ultimate plan for Jesus is that he would rule visibly and eternally as king, having completely conquered and defeated his enemies, which is part of why he had to rise and die again, or die and rise again. Wow, that was a big mistake. Die and rise again. He had to die to defeat sin, which is the ultimate cause of the problems we have in this world. And he had to to rise again so that he could have a new body, a resurrected body, which would last so that he could sit on the throne as God-man forever, which is why even though we look around us and see weakness and death, and even though we look at Jesus in the gospel and see him suffering and dying, we don't need to wonder where the story ends. Because as we look at Jesus' baptism and we hear this voice from heaven saying, you are my son, we're reminded that we're living in this brief little moment before Jesus returns in glorious power and majesty. And God forces every knee to bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You are my son, God says. Exodus. Jesus is coming to succeed where Israel failed. Psalm 2, Jesus is coming to rule as king. Isaiah, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. That's an echo of Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. You might have wondered, why did he have Huey read Isaiah 42, verse 1? Well, partly because I was wanting to see if you would catch it. There's an echo in Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, in whom I am well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And so the the son is the servant. And that's an important clue, which I don't really have time to explain. But it's there, that's the point. If you open up Isaiah, it's there, who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. After talking about Israel being sent into exile in chapters 1 to 39, and after promising this king who's going to come and rule, God talks about this servant. And at first, when you read Isaiah, you think the servant is the nation of Israel because they're supposed to serve God, but they didn't. And and so suddenly you see what God's doing is sending an individual who will do everything Israel failed to do in their role as God's servant and who's going to accomplish salvation and enable them to enjoy the fulfillment of God's promises. But he's going to do that differently than people might expect, and that is through suffering, rejection, and death. Remember Isaiah 53? You know, it's funny. I I was thinking this week when it comes to doubt, because you remember the big... Part of the purpose of why Luke is sharing all this is to deal with doubt. And he wants to help us be certain about who who Jesus is and that he is who the Bible says he is. And it's funny when it comes to doubt because one thing you'll notice about doubt is that doubt is never satisfied. Doubt is like death. Death is never satisfied. Doubt is never satisfied. And so it's like someone, imagine, comes to you and says, how can I believe that Jesus is really the key to God's plan for rescuing the world? 
Okay, that's a real question. Well, what if, let's just say, what if thousands of years before Jesus comes into the world, God tells you about Jesus and explains what he's going to do and how he's going to do it? And then what if when Jesus actually does come into the world, God rips the heavens open and he quotes those passages and he says, this is the one. Because that's actually what happened. When God speaks at Jesus' baptism, he's not just saying words, he's identifying Jesus. He's laying out his agenda. This man, Jesus, who's being baptized with everyone else, is the one God the Father chose to represent Israel and to be the eternal king. And he will accomplish that great victory in a surprising way, the way that Isaiah describes through his suffering and death. And you know, there's still more because there's another phrase or word that God uses to describe Jesus here. And it's the word beloved. You are my beloved son. And that's a faint echo. Anybody have where that's a faint echo of? That's a faint echo of Genesis 22. Exodus, Psalm, Isaiah, Genesis. You remember the story when God chooses a man named Abraham and he promises him a son who would be a key part of his plan to rescue the world. And the thing about this promise was that it seemed so impossible because Abram and his wife Sarah were so old, and yet they believed God, and it was good they did because God finally kept his promise only to tell Abram in Genesis 22 that he's supposed to take up his son and offer him as a sacrifice, which was horrifying, and it must have felt like God was breaking his word as God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, which I'm quoting because it's a really famous story and it's the exact term God uses here to describe Jesus. Only we know with Abraham it was a test and he didn't have to actually end up sacrificing his beloved son in the end. But the thing is, God would. God did. The, the, the death of Jesus was not a mistake or an accident. It was part of the plan. And this is where I can get a little excited because just think about God the Father in his absolute beauty and magnificence. Imagine someone so large that he holds the universe in the palm of his hand and so wise he knows and he understands absolutely everything and so good that everything he thinks and everything he does is right and so glorious that the greatest of beings tremble with holy fear as they come into his presence. I mean, can you imagine the kind of person someone like that loves, someone like that finds delight in. And we see here that God the Father is delighted in Jesus. It's impossible to overstate the affection and love and pleasure and joy God the Father finds in God the Son. And yet you know why God the Father sent his Son, his beloved Son, into the world? We're getting a, a glimpse here at his baptism. It's to keep the promises he made in the Old Testament about how he would solve the problems our sin and our rebellion created. You see, he made the world perfect and he had a plan to, to use man to act as his representative and to fill the earth with his glory, but man wouldn't do it. And yet that didn't stop God, and so he chose this nation Israel to be his son and to represent him to the world and to bring blessing to the nations, but they wouldn't do it. 
And yet that didn't stop God. And so he sent his only son, his beloved son, to become man, to do what Adam couldn't do and to do what Israel wouldn't do. And he's going to do that first by living an obedient life, obeying all the commands that God gave Israel. And second, by dying a death he didn't deserve as a sacrifice to take the punishment for man's sin and to deal with what's really broken in this world. And third, by raising from the dead and rising from the dead and defeating death, and then finally by returning and establishing God's kingdom. And how do we know that? How do we know that? One way we know that is because of what happened at his baptism. We see him identifying with Israel, humbling himself as he goes into the water with everyone else and saying these promises that they're hoping in, this is what I'm hoping in as well. It's like he's saying this is the true story of how God saves the world. And then we know Jesus is right because as he's praying, God rips open the heavens and he testifies to who Jesus is by sending his spirit to anoint him and by preaching an Old Testament sermon, which tells us that Jesus is representing Israel, that Jesus is the great messianic king, and that the way he'll accomplish salvation is laid out for us in Isaiah 40 to 55, and that we get a glimpse of how he's going to keep his promise if we look back to Abraham's sacrifice of his beloved son, Isaac. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, we bring all our doubts to, uh, to, to your word, and sometimes the Bible actually says, you know what, you're not even having the right doubts. Let me show you the, the things that people who were there in the day doubted. They wondered about how you, Jesus, could be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And yet, Lord, we see the way in which you answered those doubts, and I pray that this answer would, the Holy Spirit would, would take this answer and preach it to our hearts that we might see Jesus, see you for who you are and go away assured that you are the one through whom God is going to solve all the problems of the universe. And that the way in which you do that first is by dying as a sacrifice on our behalf. And we pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name.